I'm not quite firing on all cylinders this morning. Some of you have noticed this. Um, and so let's just open with prayer, at least not for my sake, maybe for all of us. Father, I'm humbled that, uh, that we get to share in this today. We, we get to participate in, in the, new, um, the new kingdom you're building here, and it will culminate, it will all be fulfilled someday in perfection. But in our own imperfection, we are able to participate in what you're doing in the world, including blessing 71 kids in, in Jesus' name, and to uh, bless families in ways that we normally would not be able to. I ask that uh, your spirit do its work in, in me and in us as we anticipate this next week and in uh, different ways, uh, gatherings that maybe have already taken place or will do so today or this week, and that we will see your hand in our own lives and your word active in our own hearts, and that this hour would be uplifting, not just to us, but an honor to you. Help us to see the big picture, but also to narrow down and to see what it is that you would have for us in this hour today. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. So I'm looking at the big picture, and I'm going to drill down. Uh, just a question, have you ever wondered why the calendar is set up the way it is? The months of the year, that is. Today we follow a Gregorian calendar, and I'm not going to get into all of that, but it's based on an ancient Roman calendar, and it had 12 months, but only 10 months had names because nobody cared what happened during the winter. All the military campaigns ceased, nobody did any farming, nobody got out, and it was just those 10 months. So basically, the dead winter months didn't have any names at first. So the first month of the year was obviously what? March, of course. March, named after the Roman god Mars, the god of war. And that is the time, according to 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, in the springtime, when kings went off to war. That's the time when David didn't go out to war and trouble started, and we'll get to that later. And then April, from the word aperio, which means to open, to bud, flowers. May, for the goddess Maya, who oversaw the growth of plants. June for the Roman goddess Juno, patronage of marriage. Ever wonder why so many weddings happen in June? Well, Juno was the one for well-being of women. And then, of course, there's Quintilis and Sextilis. And then there's September, meaning 7, October, meaning 8, November, meaning 9, and December, meaning 10. Ever wonder why December was the 12th month of the year? Well, we're missing two months. Obviously, January and February were added. Janus is the, the god that has two faces, one looking forward, one looking back. And then Februaris was a festival of purity. But we don't have Quintilis and Sextilis on our calendars anymore. What we have is July and August. July being named after Julius Caesar, who lived between 144 B.C. It was named July after his death. And then August named to honor the first Roman emperor and grandnephew of Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar. Caesar Augustus, who lived until AD 14, well into Jesus' childhood. Augustus is a word meaning venerable, noble, and majestic. And we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, 
At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. In ancient times, kings and emperors often were thought of as gods. They made themselves gods. They didn't mind. Caesar Augustus was no exception. Here's a little information about Caesar Augustus. He was already the most important and powerful man on earth. Roman Empire stretched far and wide, but this wasn't enough. Augustus wanted a piece of heaven. He was determined that he would be his people's ultimate spiritual leader as well as their political leader. So when he was handed a piece of luck from the sky, he grabbed onto it and took full advantage of it. It wasn't called Halley's Comet back then, but it was a comet nonetheless, and its orbit, many of you know, is 76 years between its appearances on Earth. And that comet appeared in the sky, and he claimed that it was Julius Caesar's spirit ascending to the heavens as a god. And as his bloodline, Augustus claimed himself to be the son of a god. He reestablished traditional social rules. He performed religious rituals. He sacrificed animals to Rome's gods. And two years before his death, he made himself Pontifex Maximus, the Roman high priest of all high priests in the land. He was declared at his death the son of God. His strategy had worked. And so it's no coincidence that the Gospel of Mark, largely written to a Roman audience, would begin with the line, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see that claim as some religious kind of prophetic type of thing. In Mark's day, it was political dissidence. It was a very political statement. This was revolutionary. It flew into the face of the government at that time. Marvin Olasky quoted a book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. I just want to read a couple paragraphs. He said, Crucifixion as a deterrent needed to be public to be effective. But so foul was the smell and the the visual of their disgrace that many Romans felt stained by even witnessing a crucifixion. Romans have almost never described this ultimate penalty, but there are four detailed accounts of the process by which a man was sentenced to death on a cross. They all describe the same crucifixion, that of a Jew named Jesus of Nazareth, resurrected to a new and glorious form. And he writes, modern-day Christians understand this, But here's what we don't understand, the utter strangeness of all of this. The vast majority of people in the Roman world, it was not strange that a human might become divine. Romans all believed this had happened to Hercules and Romulus and Julius Caesar and Augustus. Winners attain God's status. They were were victorious because they had power, and then they could torture their enemies, not be tortured. And there's the last quote. The thought of a man who had himself been crucified, being hailed as a god, was seen by Romans everywhere as scandalous, grotesque, and obscene. But that's exactly what happened, isn't it? In a time and day when men made themselves gods, God used their pride to orchestrate the coming of the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. A man who was 
already worshipped as a god, proclaimed a census that would move circumstances and people so that the one true God could enter time and space as a baby king, humble and lowly, a friend of sinners, one acquainted with suffering. Point number one of two today, God is active in history to manipulate and use the arrogance of godless kings to advance his will and redeem all people. Second part, Galatians 4, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So when you read the Christmas story, and I hope you do at any family gathering, I hope you grab a Bible and I hope you read the Christmas story to whoever's there, whatever your family looks like. And when you do that, when you open up to Matthew chapter 1, generally, we start with verse 18, don't we? I mean, if you got your Bibles open to Matthew 1, the first 17 verses are like, okay, verse, okay, now the good part, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, right? Isn't that what we do? Nobody even knows how to pronounce half of these names, let alone know why they're there. The genealogy of Matthew 1 is super important. It's not just an opening illustration or some dry stuff that Matthew thought Matthew attached great importance to this. It wasn't just for show. It boldly claimed that Jesus is legal heir to the throne of David, the seed of Abraham, fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And I'm going to attempt something here with the help of um, the Jackson twins. Um, so come on up here, guys. Brian and Daniel, come on up here. We're going to try and sing... A guy named by the name of Andrew Peterson wrote a song that put Matthew's genealogy to music. I've been looking forward to that for a month. <laughs> Strange thing about genealogies in the ancient world, they almost never mentioned women. Which is strange considering future generations need both men and women to happen, right? But this was the culture. But Matthew's different in that he mentions five women, well, four with Mary, but four that I'm going to cover. Three by name and one by association. If you ever thought your family tree was full of nuts, consider, consider Jesus. I was, just a bit of transparency here, I was hesitant to get married. I knew that I wanted to marry Rhoda by, I mean, there was no hesitancy in my wanting to marry her. My hesitancy was, I'm going to mess this up big time. I looked at my family tree and went, I, I, I don't think I can do this. I looked at my own experience from my own home and my own, the grandparents that, that I had and aunts and uncles. And we spent a year, after we were married, I spent a year in Dodge which I don't recommend unless you really love the wind and the smell of cattle. Um, but while I was out there interning at a church, I spent some time with a guy named Evan Horner, who was our counselor at the time. The church hired him as being a counselor there at the building. And uh, Evan took me through a lot of stuff. And what he did once one week in particular was a genogram. 
If you've never done a genogram, it's more than a family tree. You can do family trees, but genograms have connections and, and different uh, colors and lines and dots and triangles and squares and circles and that mean things. And when he got done with all the oral history and he put that up on a big whiteboard and I saw the generations of dysfunction or alcoholism or divorce or distancing emotionally or all that stuff, I went, wow. It's not all bad, but it was bad. <laughs> and, and it's true that the sins of the fathers followed the children to third and fourth generation. And I was, I've been blessed to, to be rescued from because of, of God's mercy. My dad's dad was an abusive alcoholic. My dad never touched the bottle, ever. But he was raised with a very distant, damaging relationship with his dad. And so when he had me, he didn't know how to relate to me as a son emotionally because he never had that as his father, but he grew in that. And as I grew in Christ, so did he, and we began to make more connections with that. And now that my children are being raised by a bit more emotionally stable environment than what my dad had as a child, I wonder when my grandchildren come, will they be free of the alcoholism of my grandfather? You see what I'm saying? That God works through generations of brokenness to be able to bring about his purposes. And that's totally true here in the genealogy of Matthew. The circumstances surrounding the four women that Matthew include are not exactly complimentary. They're stories that most people of prominence would have wiped out of their personal history, but not Jesus, not this record from Matthew. The, ma the message that Matthew is communicating to his largely Jewish audience is that the Messiah just isn't for Jews only. It's not just for self-proclaimed good people because there aren't any. The one who, like the angel said, would save his people from their sins came not just from Hebrew heritage, but also from Canaanite and Moabite, a human train wreck that suffered stories of incest and deception and prostitution and sexual assault and infidelity and murder. Tamar, you can read her stories in the latter part of Genesis, I believe chapter 37, 38, Tamar was chosen for Judah's oldest son. His name was Ur. It's a strange name. Like, what are you going to name this kid? Ur. Oh, good one. Okay, we'll name him that. Uh, I don't know. He was, all the, all the scripture talks about Ur is that he was evil and the Lord killed him. Wow. Okay, that's a legacy. And so by, by tradition, Tamar was given to the next brother so that he might have children by her. Well, Onan didn't want to do that. And he defiled her and he was killed. And the next brother was like a little kid, you know, got to wait for him for another 15 years. Well, she didn't want to do that either. So she took matters into her own hands. Frustrated and childless, she dressed up as a prostitute, veiled her face, and lured her own father-in-law, Judah, into that fornication. And twins were born. Nothing more is said about her in Scripture. This doesn't record any happy ending for our life. She represents the desperation and sinfulness of humanity, her choices and those who abused and neglected her. 
And maybe that's why Matthew chose to mention her so prominently. If God would carry the messianic line through a product of incense, harlotry, immorality, and deception, he must surely be a God of grace. Rahab, a Canaanite woman in the city of Jericho, as Joshua and the nation of Israel crossed over the Jordan River on dry ground, she's just known as a harlot. You know, Rahab the harlot. She's the prostitute. She, was the, she, along with all the people in Jericho, were the enemies of God's people, but she knew she knew that this group coming over was going to take over. She knew the God of Israel was stronger than her own gods, and she begged for mercy, and she made a deal. And she was spared, apparently taken as a wife, by an Israelite named Salmon, and just like that, she's great-grandmother to King David. One generation later, Ruth is not described like Tamar or Rahab. She's a foreigner, though. She's from Moab. Ruth married Boaz. The difficulty here is that Ruth is from Moab. She's a very righteous person. She was dedicated to her mother-in-law. She did everything she could to take care of her. But Moab, the origins of Moab, you've got to go back to Lot and his daughters after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to figure out where Moab and Ammon came from. The Jews hated Moab. They just detested Moabites. But then Boaz took pity on Ruth to be his wife, she became the grandmother of King David. And then there's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The writer of 2 Samuel seems to indicate that that's the time of year when kings go off to war, but one king didn't. In fact, he was up on his rooftop, lingering when he shouldn't have been, letting his heart and his desires bring darkness into his heart and his mind. And Bathsheba was the, the victim of a whole lot of bad decisions by, by David resulted in the death of Uriah, the death of the baby that was born as a result of David's sin. Within his own people Israel, God worked within the rebellion and the idolatry and the disobedience. He redeemed the brokenness, even in the middle of his discipline and punishment and exile that he put them through. Now, I believe God will reward and bless obedience and faithfulness to his ways, but this also tells me that this is the second point. God redeems the unfaithfulness of his people so that his plans are accomplished. So here's, here's two truths that I want us to, to focus on in the big picture of history. God is active in history to manipulate and use the arrogance of godless kings to advance his purposes, to redeem all people, and he will redeem the unfaithfulness of his people so that his plans are accomplished. So, does this mean that we can just do whatever we want and God does what he wants anyway? Well, of course not. Let's not confuse the fulfillment, one. Let's not conf confuse the fulfillment of the birth of the Messiah with your own salvation and lordship in everyday life. Okay, that's one. God is merciful and he will act on your behalf even in the midst of your sin and rebellion. And who knows how many times God has spared me and showed me mercy even in when he's disciplining me and he's working in my life, he's working in my failures to his glory. But if I just do what I want and God does what he wants, I miss the blessing. I miss the salvation. I miss on being made more like Jesus. In carrying out his plans more than anything, God desires our loving obedience and following him. If you've ever tried to take more than one child to the grocery store at a time, under the age of five, anybody? Anybody ever tried to take more than one child to the store at one time 
I mean, pick, take care, end of the age of 12, I don't care. If you've ever tried to do that, you understand the reality of willing obedience or forced subjugation. You will get your purposes done, but it will either be to the delight of everyone or to the suffering of all, right? But we will get groceries, and we will get you some shoes, even if you scream the whole time. We will accomplish the goal. But it's so much happier when children go, yes, mommy, oh yes, we'll do that, or no, I won't touch that. I know you told me twice. I, I, told me one time and I'll listen the first time that's what I'll do and it's so much better when there's joyful obedience willing obedience and it's so when you've you you're at the store and you see a kid in the cart and you've seen these kids and they just you go by them and they say hello hello and they're not on the tablet they're not they're not screaming they're engaged in the world and they're loving it all and that mother or father has got it made right this is god's desire for all of us do you think if god can be active in history to turn the hearts of godless kings and emperors do you think if god can be faithful in the midst of the unfaithfulness of his people do you think he can bring about the healing and purpose of all your mistakes and or the violence that's been done to your heart? I mean, in a large picture, do you think he can redeem all that's been done to you and by you? Do you think he can forgive you and cleanse you of all that's been done to you or that you have done to others? And do you think, do you really believe that God wants to and will Bring love and joy in the midst of your Christmas. If yes, then I think it would be much more to your benefit if you were a willing participant. If you wouldn't fight kicking and screaming the whole time. If There would be much more blessing in it if you were eager to follow his ways. Those around you would experience more healing if you were a thankful son or daughter in the midst of this everyday struggle. If God can move in history, he can move in your life today. The question is, will you let him? Will we, al will we allow him? What do you need to surrender? And here's my last question. What do you need to surrender to King Jesus in order to participate in what he wants to accomplish in your life? It may be a small thing, but what do we need to surrender to King Jesus so that his purposes are fulfilled in you? Let's pray. Father, quiet our hearts today and help us to see the, the vast power that you displayed throughout centuries. Let that humble us but also keep us very aware that you are active in the everyday and that you desire daily, hour by hour, submission and obedience to King Jesus for our good and for our peace and for the strength and the healing of, of our world, however large or small that might be. 
Thank you for reminding us that you are Lord of all. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.